Good morning, church. How is everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. At least half of us are here. Um, let's talk about stories. Um, man, stories are important. Uh, so my family is a family of storytellers. Um, there's a couple of different reasons they tell stories. One is informative. Um, we all live in different places now. Obviously, I have my own house. My sister lives in a different place. And so my parents will tell a story to kind of catch up. You know, your aunt is doing this, or your sister is doing this, or just to kind of inform us and let us know. Um, for some reason, there's a need to give the entire history before someone came into a family. So Brianna gets like years worth of stories. She gets stories before I was even born. Um, but I think my family tells stories most of all um, because they think they're funny. Uh, the kids went to a St. Patrick's Day thing yesterday, actually, and uh, Brianna was telling them that some of the people were acting rowdy because they were drinking. And uh, she explained to them that they could get in trouble for drinking and getting into their cars and that people use this as an excuse to act irresponsible. And, so one of the children recalled a story that my dad had told them about my first ticket, which was not for drinking. <laughs> I was simply doing 80 in an active school zone. Other than that, um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but of course, in their mind, they put the two together. Did daddy get it, a ticket for drinking and driving? And I was like, no, 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 let's not. <laughs> Let's not ever go down that path. No, no. No, this is, again, simply for endangering the lives of small children. Um, so we tell stories to convey information, sometimes for the humor of it, sometimes for fun. Stories are important, though, because they help convey a message, right? In a way that simply stating the facts just won't do sometimes. Um, and we see this... Of course, in the Bible, we see it outside of the Bible. Uh, we have uh, fables and parables that we tell our children, um, that we tell you know, people coming into a society that kind of help illustrate, right? Kind of help illustrate things. Uh, one of those is the boy who cried wolf. A lot of us are familiar with that, right? So if you're not familiar, um, simply put, there was a, a shepherd, a boy, um, and he was out in the countryside, and he basically got bored with his sheep. And uh, he decided to sound an alarm that there was a wolf, and it was coming to eat his sheep, and the people from the village rushed to him, and of course there was no wolf, and he laughed, and they left. And then he did it a couple more times, and then about the third or fourth time, a few weeks later, an actual wolf came into his camp and started eating his sheep, and when he cried wolf, no one came. It's really difficult to look at someone and say, nobody likes liars, right? You don't hear that phrase anywhere. Like, if you lie, no one's going to listen to you. But by putting it in a story, it kind of softens the blow. It kind of separates it from us. No one's saying, you're a liar. They're just saying, if you lie, people aren't going to believe you anymore. So we do this all the time, right? We do this... Like I said, we, do, we see this in the Bible, we see this in society, and again, it conveys a message, 
But it also helps explain a story in a way that helps us separate ourselves from the blow. Right? Let me give you... If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're in Luke 10 uh, today, starting in verse 25. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus chose to illustrate certain points by telling stories. Um, and there are literally entire books on parables and stories and what kind of stories certain ones are and what they're meant to prove and what they say. And, and the general idea is there's about three different kinds of stories. Um, there are similes that Jesus uses. Uh, there are narratives. And the ones we find specifically in Luke um, are often referred to as example stories. So Jesus is specifically talking to someone, and in answer to a question, he gives them a story. It's, it's pretty specific to Luke, um, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But, but we find these stories in Luke, and of course one of them is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus' ministry was all about creating a paradigm shift, right? He was all about, he was all about creating this shift from... Um, like we've heard in past sermons, from the law to this concept of love, which is really difficult. If you've grown up in a society and you've grown up in a time that is, it is so preoccupied with what the law says and what's on paper, and someone comes along and says, that's really important, but also there's some other stuff that you guys need to know. That's a huge shift. And so part of the reason Jesus uses stories is to help this shift occur, to help people understand, oh, the law may say this, but what's expected of me is something else. Let's jump right in, because there's a lot of unpacking to do. Uh, Luke 25 through 29. I'm going to read it, and then we'll kind of unpack it slowly. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So verse 25, we'll just take this verse by verse. He challenges Jesus, and not in, in an aggressive way. He's not, uh, he's not trying to make Jesus look bad. Um, he's a lawyer. He's a, a man of the law. And so when Jesus starts talking about things to people that pertain to the law, he's really just asking for clarification. It sounds like you're talking about something else. I, I just want to be certain. He says, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's, what's the law? And Jesus uses what's called the, I mean, Socratic method is what we call it today, where you, ask a, you answer a question with a question, and essentially what it does is it allows the decision themselves. Right? So he's using this Socratic method to, to kind of tease out an answer. So what, is you, what do you think it says? Knowing full well, he's a man of the law, he knows what, what the law is going to say. Uh, but it's really interesting. His answer, actually, it's a combination of two things. 
Um, the answer, of course, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's covering bases is what he's really doing, okay? So he starts out with the Shema, right? And the Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6. It's, it's really important in a lot of um, like Orthodox and even just rabbinically Jewish tradition, uh, the Shema is really important. You see them on the Tanakh, which is the, the decorative thing that's, that put up, that's put up by doors. Basically, it's, a, it's an explanation by God of who he is to the Hebrew people. And again, it happens in Deuteronomy. It's very early. It's one of the first times God stands up and he says, I'm God. I'm the only one. So it reads like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Very first, very basic command, right? Like every Jewish child growing up knows this commandment. So he's starting out, he's like, start out with basics. Yeah, uh, you know, love the Lord your God, right? But to cover his basis, he also includes Leviticus 19.18 which says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. And that comes from a reading of the law by Moses in Leviticus. Leviticus, if, if you've read through it, is basically just a list of rules. Um, it's for the Levite people. It's for the priestly class of people. Um, but there are times where he stops uh, he's dictating information to Moses, and Moses stops and says, this is an important one. This is an important one. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, right? So he ends it with that kind of a big punctuation, like, I want you guys to listen to this one in particular, right? We know all this other stuff. There's all, uh, Dan mentioned in the intro, there's 613 mitzvahs which are all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. There's 613 rules in the Old Testament. Um, but every now and again, he picks one out and he says, pay particular attention to this one. And this love your neighbor as yourself, that's a really important one. So the lawyer, like I said, is like a lawyer. And he's covering all of his bases, right? So he's like, I got, I got the big one. I got the Shema. So I want to say that, and everyone here is going to know what that means when I stand up and say it. They're going to know that, you know, I know all the answers. Also, I'm going to throw in a Leviticus, uh, little Leviticus 19 so that everybody knows, love your neighbors yourself. That's an important one, right? So in verse 28, Jesus goes, yeah, right? That's right. You answered correct. Do that, and you'll live. Here's the important part. Then the lawyer, like a lawyer does, attempts to clarify. So, who is my neighbor? Right? There's a couple of different readings of this. Some people take it at face value and say, well, maybe he's just want, he wants to make sure. Right? But I think any of us who have ever talked with God know that really what he's trying to do is limit who his neighbor is. Right? In the Hebrew, the word neighbor means anyone you really have an association with. Right? It's a rough translation of the, the words that mean neighbor. Um, so it actually, in particular, does not mean 
uh, people from outside of your community. It doesn't mean Romans. Um, it doesn't mean Samaritans in particular. It's anyone you associate with. So anyone within your community, you'd really only do business with people inside your community, obviously your family, your friends, those people are your neighbors. That's the understanding of the word neighbor. And so he wants to clarify, when, when you say treat my neighbor like myself, what are you, who are you really talking about? So Jesus tells a parable to clarify the point, right? Now, I love this passage because <laughs> it absolutely describes my relationship with God on so many levels. <clears throat> um, we've, I've been here for a couple of years, and I've talked with David and, and Dan about my journey into preaching, and, and I, I have this bad habit of just not listening to God. Um, and it's because it's I don't want to. Like, I just don't know other you know, way to say it. Um, I constantly look for loopholes and workarounds and easy ways out. <clears throat> Once upon a time, I got a tax return. And it was a really nice tax return. And it was a big tax return with lots of monies in it. And I had plans for the monies. And then Brianna came to me, and she said, I feel like God's telling me something. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is God telling you? <clears throat> she says, I have this friend who's going through a really nasty divorce. And she has kids. And he cheated on her, and he left her, and he's not helping out. And she needs money. And we have some money. Yes, we do have some money. <clears throat> I have plans for that money. I had planned on maybe buying a new stereo, but <laughs> God in his infinite wisdom reached down and told my wife that there were better uses for that money. And there were, but I cannot tell you how many different ways I tried to slide out of that. Because sometimes God tells us hard truths, like, I gave you this money, but the reason I gave you this money was so that you could give it to that lady. Like, okay. All right, fine. <laughs> so we did. But I tried every way I could to get out of that. I'm not going to lie. This isn't, this isn't some Pat James on the back. I was a jerk <clears throat> but we try and find those workarounds and so Jesus kind of preempts the lawyer and he goes you know what fine I'll tell you a story I'll break it down for you right and we go to Luke 10 30 through 35 and this is this is the actual story itself in reply Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay. I'm going to stop there for a second. This particular road was nasty. I'm talking like there's a place in Kansas City called Troost. It's rough. Um, we're talking like times 10. Because it's, 
It's actually the layout of this road between Jericho and Jerusalem is windy, and you're just walking, and there's plenty of places for people to hide. Um, every, every commentary I read actually made special mention about this road in particular and how awful this road was. So take any street, like, oh, that's a bad side of town, times 10. Times 10. Because there were people around every corner waiting to beat you up and take your stuff. So <clears throat> it actually has a special place in modern history because it keeps getting mentioned so much. Martin Luther King Jr., in his famous mountaintop speech, I've been to the mountaintop, actually mentions this road. And he's talking about a trip that he and his wife took. And this is the quote. He says, as soon as we got on the road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around, or if it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to ask this man, what will happen to me? This was a bad, bad place, and everyone knows it. Verses 31 through 32, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. The dude crossed the street to get away. Now, there are some explanations, possibly, for why this happened. We're talking about two fairly religious men, obviously one of them vocationally, a Levite, is from the, the priest class from within the nations of, of uh, Judaism. Um, you don't touch dead things, right? It's one of those mitzvahs. It's one of those commandments. You don't touch dead things. It defiles you and it disallows you um, access to a temple. It, it disallows you access to, to holy events. Um, you have to go through a whole cleansing ritual. There's several days in between. And so one of the explanations is, hey, 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 maybe, maybe um, they didn't want to be unclean. Maybe they thought he was dead, right? So they weren't taking any chances. They walked on the other side of the road. There's two issues with that. One, the way it's worded assumes they're actually going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the temple's in Jerusalem. They're done for the day, right? They're going somewhere else. That's my issue. The other issue is it shows a complete lack of anything other than the law. A commentator, G.B. Caird, in his discussion of Luke, said this, it weighed more with them that he might be dead and defiling to touch of those whose business was with holy things than he might be alive and in need of their care. So he they cared more about the fact that, oh, I'm going to have to go through a cleansing ritual. I might be defiling myself. They cared more about that than they cared about the fact that he might actually still be alive, that he might be salvable, and that he might need help. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Let's talk about Samaritans for a second. 
I cannot tell you how important it is that Jesus is using a Samaritan in this role. <clears throat> to simply say that the Jewish people of his time and of his lineage hated the Samaritans is the understatement of the decade. So the Samaritans, for background, are basically Jewish, kind of. So they have a lot of the same traditions, right? They use a lot of the same material. They have a lot of the same law and a lot of the same ritual. And the issue was when the kingdoms split north and south, these people started intermarrying with people who weren't Jewish, which is a big no-no, right? And not only did they start intermarrying with people who weren't Jewish, they started adopting a lot of their customs, which in the eyes of the rabbinic Jews, which are the ones that our lineage from King David on down to Jesus, those people looked on that and said, no, no, that's not us. You've got it all wrong. So it, it caused friction, right? But some things happened. A, the rabbinic Jews said, Jerusalem this is where God is. It's the holy city. And the, the Samaritans said, no, 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 it's actually this mountain. It's called Mount Gerizim. It's outside the West Bank. That's where God lives. So they disagree. So. But you guys know when you have a small disagreement, it kind of festers. It kind of culminates in one event in particular. It was getting ready to be a high holy day at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans came with bones, people bones, bones of dead people, and they dropped them in the temple in Jerusalem. And it completely defiled not just anyone who was in there, but the entire temple. Which means that the Jews at the time couldn't, couldn't correspond with God. Like, temple was shut down. That was a high holy day. They were getting ready to commune with God. And the Samaritans said, no, we're going to shut it down for you. And ever since then, they haven't gotten along to the point that they've killed each other maimed each other, and they hate, hate each other. So it's super important that he's the one that stops and helps the man. The last of it says, he went to him, this is the Samaritan, to the man on the side of the road, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil, and, uh, or we assume olive, but oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. Um, so a silver denarii was about a day's wage, a little bit more. It could have been about three days' wages, depending on your job. Picks out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. So, just some quick background. Wine is a disinfectant. Oil is a soothing agent. So he doctors him up as best he can with what he's got on the side of the road. He uses his own donkey, his mode of transportation, the thing that was probably going to keep him close to safe on that road. And he puts the man on his donkey and then takes him into town and uses his money and doesn't just pay for a room, but pays in advance. 
And some of the commentaries say they think he might have been a merchant because his schedule was such that he knew he'd be back in town. So he not only pays for the couple of days that he knows he's going to be there, but he says, I'm going to be back. If he racks up any more charges, you let me know, and I got that too. Myself included, I don't know how many of us would be willing to pay for a room and be like, if they order HBO and room service, put it on my card. But this is essentially the equivalent thereof. Sometimes we get help from the places we absolutely least expect it. I want to tell you another quick story. That's a man named Carl Plaga. That's also Carl Plaga. Carl was a Nazi. There's no other way to put it. <clears throat> Carl was drafted into the German army during World War II. Um, he was injured in World War I, so they limited his duty um, to essentially administrative tasks. He wasn't going to be a soldier per se, but he was still part of the, part of the Nazi army. In 1941, Carl was placed in command of the HKP-562, a unit responsible for repairs of military vehicles damaged on the Eastern Front. Plaga experienced something of a pang of conscience. He later told people he hadn't signed up for genocide. He made the decision to leverage his position and use Jews as quote-unquote slave labor for the HKP pleading the case to his superiors that if Jews didn't work there, there would be no one to fix the vehicles. Virtually none of the 1,200 Jews was knowledgeable in fixing vehicles. They were accountants, lawyers, hairdressers, academics, and other such civilians. They learned various tasks on the job while at HKP. Plaga soon convinced the Nazi SS that every single one of those people that lived in the town was absolutely crucial to his operation. Then Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, announced in the summer of 1943 that he wanted every Jew in Eastern Europe eliminated, murdered, killed. Irrespective of whether or not they were contributing to the war effort as part of a camp, so with Plaga's approval, his workers began carving out what they were called molinas, which were false walls, rooms, and they existed in the walls between houses, in the rafters, in the attics. He literally told his people, go and make preparations to hide. In June of 1944, the Soviet Red Army approached the outer edge of Vilnius, where HKP was located. It was a sign that the Allies were nearing victory. And on July 1st, 1944, a month later, Plaga made an impromptu announcement in front of an SS commander and all of the Jewish workers who had been gathered to listen. He explained that his unit was being transferred westbound. And though he requested his laborers be allowed to join, his superiors wouldn't permit it. He was telling them in code, hide. Roughly half of the workers, some 500 of them, hid in their molinas or ran away from camp 
and some of the others decided to stay. And so when Nazi troops took over the camp two days later, 500 Jewish workers appeared for roll call and were killed on the spot. And it took Nazis three more days to comb through the camp and the surrounding area to find survivors, and they eventually found 200, all of whom were killed. But when the Soviets finally arrived at Vilnius later that week, approximately 250 of HKP's Jews in hiding emerged. And when the war was over, Plaga returned home to Darmstadt, Germany, where he lived for a couple of years very quietly until he was called up for a trial. During the denazification period, they would randomly bring commanders in and put them on trial to see what role they had played in the atrocities during the Holocaust. But in Plaga's defense, the survivors of HKP sent a representative to testify to the court in hopes that the charges would be overturned. The testimony resulted in a favorable judgment, and Plaga received the status of an exonerated person. And in 2005, after evidence and survivor testimony, Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, posthumously bestowed upon him the title of righteous among the nations. Sometimes help comes from where we least expect it. Luke 10, 36 through 37. <clears throat> Jesus asked, he said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hand of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. <laughs> Jesus is basically asking a rhetorical question, right? We know from the story, that's the whole point of parables, of, of, of these stories, is to explain something very sim simple to us. We all know the answer. That man knew the answer. The answer was obviously the one that took pity on the man that had been robbed. But do you hear what he doesn't say? He doesn't say his name. He has so much disdain for Samaritans that he doesn't even call him out by name. And despite the, the obvious dislike for the moral of Jesus' story, Jesus' commandment to the lawyer is, go and do just like he did. One commentator said this, the man that follows the rules is trying to save himself. The one that loves is serving God. But Jesus puts this into such a difficult context to grasp that some people still won't have it. The lawyer, although he understands, still will not call out the Samaritan's good deed and give him credit by name. But the hard lesson is still learned. You know, when an old Baptist grabs his pulpit, you're getting ready to get it. <clears throat> the point of the parables, especially those in Luke, is to illustrate difficult concepts. The shift from the law to a complex concept like love needed to be explained in a way that was easy to understand so that it was more digestible. 
the law itself leaves gaps, right? The Levite and the priest, they took full advantage of those gaps. But love fills the gaps. Jesus told his parable to illustrate what it means to love outside of what the law required, outside of the norm, outside of social convention, outside of what makes us feel comfortable. The point of the Good Samaritan is to not only show us what love means, but to illustrate what it means to love even when it makes us uncomfortable. Most importantly, though, and what we as as pastors and teachers, what we often miss when we talk about this is that it shows us how to be loved and cared for by the people we would never expect and might never normally accept help from. It shows us love all-encompassing, unembarrassed, unashamed, and unencumbered by race, by politics, or by creed. So if we find ourselves in a situation where we would be unlikely to accept help, then we must take it. But know that Christ expects us to give help to those that might never love or respect us. Let me say that again. He expects us to give help to those that would never love or respect us. The Samaritan gave wholeheartedly to a person that by all accounts despised him and whose own people passed him by. When we are at our worst, when no one on earth could love us, not our family, not our friends, when everyone we know would just pass us by, know that Christ loves you and is there to help you however he can. And he expects us all to go and do likewise.